This episode is brought to you by Catan. This summer looks a bit different than most summers. We're staying at home for the most part, and we're finding ourselves looking for new activities to enjoy at home. Catan is a board game for three to four players, ages 10 and up, although younger kids can play with adult guidance. It is a great way to keep families engaged in off screens, even if it's just for a little while. And those opportunities are hard to come by. And it's really easy to pick up. Get Catan at CatanShop.com slash mom. Listeners of our podcast get 10% off the original base game Catan by using the promo code mom at checkout. Offer not good on other Catan titles or merchandise. Xfinity XFi is more than just fast. It's internet that gives you peace of mind security. Because if it's connected, it's protected. Yeah, even your robot vacuum. Can your internet do that? Learn more at Xfinity.com slash XFi. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Molly. Molly, if it were 1930 right now mm-hmm. and not 2011, that'd be a shock. And I wanted to be a flight attendant mm-hmm. on a Boeing Air Transport flight, one of the only airlines that you could get from here to there on back mm-hmm. in the day. Yes. Three things that would prevent me from doing that. Uh oh. Are you sad, Kristen? I'm a little sad. I could not become a sky girl, as they were called back in the day, because I'm too old, I'm too tall, and I'm too fat. Oh. But today three strikes. I am that so I'm so out. And were you a nurse? I wasn't a nurse. I was trained for CPR years ago, but Lord help you if you choke on something standing next to me. Uh you had to be single. I mean, no problem there. <laughs> Uh, under 25, just aged out of that one. No taller than five feet four, like five nine. And then you could only weigh no more than 115 pounds. And let's just say if I were five nine and 115 pounds, I would need a nurse. <laughs> yeah. Um, and in addition to meeting all those physical qualifications, you had to be a nurse because in 1930, that's when we have the first female flight steward. Previously, it was boys doing it, young yeah. young teenage boys, Boy Scout They call them cabin boys. Cabin boys, um, which, like our voices imply, has a different meaning now. But uh, 1930 is when we get the first airline stewardess, as they were called back then, working that Boeing Air Transport flight. It was a woman named Ellen Church who wanted to be a pilot. And uh, that was definitely a no-go <laughs> back in the day. Yeah. Uh, but she mentioned, hey, I'm a nurse. Why don't I fly along with you? And the people thought, oh, that's good because people are kind of scared of flying. Yeah, as they should have been back in 1930. So why don't we have nurses on flight so that people feel safer? And really skinny <laughs> nurses. Really thin, short nurses. Although I guess five feet four, 115. I don't know the BMI on that, but it sounds like it's much healthier than, than five, nine, 115. <laughs> uh, so Ellen Church is the f- world's first airline stewardess. And check this out. The flight is only from Oakland to Chicago. Yeah, Oakland, California. Not that long, but it takes 20 hours and involves 13 stops along the way. So they needed someone on there yeah. to uh, to help help that flight go smoothly. So she becomes the first of what Boeing calls the Sky Girls. These, these very few women they hire who uh, meet certain physical requirements and who are nurses. But, you know, despite the fact that they've hired these very petite, small women... Being a being a sky girl wasn't just 
passing out the peanuts and pouring a Coke. It was like fueling up while the while the plane was on the ground. It was pushing the plane into the hangar at the end of the day. I mean, mm-hmm. it was it was a lot of work compared to what we may think of as sort of the stereotypical stewardess. Yeah, which is kind of ironic that they re- mandated these very petite women to be sky girls. But eventually, as as the commercial airline industry took off and they had more crews to do that, that manual labor for them, sky girls or stews, as they became known as, really became the in-flight hostesses. Right. There were some there were some train manuals that would tell the stewardesses to pretend that they were the mother of the plane. And they were hosting a party for all their friends. And that's how they should treat and serve all their guests. And uh, those requirements about looks and appearance never go away until the 1970s. Women who were serving as stewardesses, which we'll use that term even though it becomes outdated in the 1970s, they were young, they were slender, they were attractive. They were white. They were the perfect woman who will serve you a Coke no matter how nasty you are being to her. Um, and it became, you know, this very um, stylized woman who was traveling the world, becoming very cosmopolitan. But it was also a really nice way to meet a potential husband. Sure. And uh, the airlines kind of uh, had that in mind. They said, once you get married, you have to retire. Once you have a baby, you definitely have to retire. And once you turn 32, you should retire. Yes, yeah, some airlines were a little more liberal and let the women work until they were 35, but <laughs> definitely not after that. And in 1943, just to drive home the idea of of the role of these sky girls, a female writer for Independent Woman magazine wrote that they needed the skill of a nightingale, the charm of a powers model, and the kitchen wisdom of a fanny farmer. And, you know, one funny thing that, that happened a few years ago, a few years before that, Kristen is in the Literary Digest. They were talking about how these perfect women are serving as the stewardesses mm-hmm. and these really smart guys are serving as the pilots. Mm-hmm. And if these people met and had children question, would it yield a superior human being? Uh, answer, duh. That was a legitimate question posed in 1936 about intermingling between these perfect women and these uber-masculine pilots. And speaking of posing, <laughs> in 1955, United Stewardess Barbara Cameron poses for Playboy as Miss December. And really, with that, we see this huge sexual sexualization mm-hmm. of the stewardess, the sexy stewardess. Who hasn't heard about you know, the old trope with a sexy stewardess. I think Don Draper hooked up with a sexy stewardess. I'm sure he did. So because yeah, it's, it, a very, it's, a, it's a very big trope. Yeah. yeah they, well, they were, they were high. It wasn't just a trope. I mean, it was based in reality because yeah. they were hired based on their looks. They had to be attractive women and they were outfitted in attractive clothes. Which airline was it? I think that, uh, at some point Pucci mm-hmm. was, was designing their, their uniforms. Yeah. Uh, so these are pretty much the, the most good looking women. Doing, you know, very thankless tasks. It, it was often considered women's work. They aren't paid much at all. They weren't paid much, but it, it paid off in the end because you got to meet a rich husband, a guy who could afford to fly. Yeah, then you wouldn't have to work again. Um, but, you know, as, as time goes on, we hit the 50s, the 60s, the 70s. The women's right, rights movement starts to come into being. And these ladies start to think, hey, maybe it's not so awesome that I have to stop working at 32 or if I gain 10 pounds. Yeah, they actually started unionizing pretty early on. I believe in the by the by the mid to late 50s, the stewardesses were pretty well unionized. But 
Yes, with second wave feminism, these other things start to really grate on them. Like, hey, maybe I want to work for more than two years, which was the average career span of a flight attendant at that time. And when they start having these thoughts like, hey, it's it's not that cool that I always have to have makeup on despite the fact that I'm flying 20 out of 24 hours. That's when the story collides with male flight attendants who have sort of their own stigma about them because, um, you know, while these uh, women were becoming so famous for being the ideal woman, it became less common for men to work aboard flights, despite the fact that this all got started with cabin boys. Yeah. So in 1964, we have the Civil Rights Act, which is passed. And very much by accident, sort of, uh, Sex gets slipped into the Civil Rights Act in terms of you can't you can't uh, discriminate based on race or your gender. Mm-hmm. And at the time, people who did not politicians who did not want the Civil Rights Act passed slipped sex into the legislation because they thought that that would immediately stop it from moving forward. Yeah. Jokes on you, racists. <laughs> it passed. So uh, these flight attendants in their union started to realize, hey, we can use the Civil Rights Act to get uh, this marriage clause struck, to get the weight gain limitation struck. But to do so, they had to bring in the male flight attendants. And male flight attendants had a bad reputation at the time. There was one case in 1954 when a male steward was gunned down in Miami mm-hmm. by two teenagers who alleged that the, the steward had come on to them and, um, you know, it turned into a robbery and went bad and they had to shoot him. So a lot of the stereotypes that we have about male flight attendants being gay comes from this one case in 1954 where uh, because of the way it was drummed up in the press, people started thinking, oh, man, all these male stewards who want to be like these pretty ladies, they're all they're all homosexual and we should fear them. And, um, you know, people who wrote uh, newspaper stories about the case often didn't question the morality of the two teenage killers, the people who actually pulled the trigger. Right. It was all like, oh, man, this guy was awful. He was so depraved. And as a result, anyone who does his profession must be depraved because this is clearly a woman's work. Yeah, since he was a homosexual and one of the murderers claimed in defense that he shot him because he didn't want to be sexually attacked by this man, the the jury actually let them off, the murderers off, uh, with manslaughter charges rather than uh, murder charges mm-hmm. just because they, you know, it was at the time considered such a depraved lifestyle and actually triggered a bunch of sting operations in Miami to uproot this uh, this homosexual community. So all this is going on. This sort of sets the stage for bias against male Stewards. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess that's kind of redundant, but against male flight attendants. Uh, but the female flight attendants who really want to dismantle all of these repressive standards and actually be able to make careers out of flying from place to place realize that the only way they're going to win this case is if they go to the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission or Council set up to to um, hear cases related to Title VII of the Civil Rights Act mm-hmm. and have them dismantle all of these uh, all these mandates from the airlines based on the sex clause in the Civil Rights Act. Yeah, these stewardesses don't necessarily want more male stewards working. That would take away jobs from yeah. them. They do think that it's their their job to nurture all these passengers. Yeah, and they do think it's kind of an absurd idea <laughs> that a guy would want to fill their shoes. Yeah. 
But they think, okay, if we're going to make this a case about gender so that we can use Title VII, we're going to have to bring the male stewards kind of in with us and say, hey, these people can do our job just as well as we can, and they can get married, because there were a handful of male stewards still working after that, that landmark case, and they could get married, they could have children, and they could still fly because they were men. So the stewardesses have to show that uh, the fact that they can't get married is sex discrimination. And all this comes down to something referred to as a BFOQ. The Bonafide Occupation Qualification. Yes, which is basically like a a necessity to hold the job. It's the loophole they find, that the airlines find. Yeah, like, I mean, if you you want to be a doctor, you got to go to med school. I mean, it's a BFOQ. So the female stewardesses are saying being a woman is not a BFOQ for this job. Therefore, you are discriminating against men by not hiring them on the basis of their gender, even though the airline, uh, the heads of the airlines were coming back and saying, you know, there's uh, it, it is a BFOQ for a woman to be a stewardess because you can men cannot create this psychological like nurturing atmosphere that we need to create on our flights so yeah you do have to be a woman so they go back and forth and back and forth yeah i mean can you imagine reading a document that says this job is meant to be done by a young single girl yeah i mean what job can you think of what that can be done by a young single girl and that's what they're saying flight attendants were they were saying that nurturing passengers Giving them liquids, it was it was like mothering, therefore only women could do it. So that's the argument. Is it a BFOQ? And that is not a crazy argument at the time in no. the late 60s. We really haven't progressed very much at all. And uh, because of that, there was a big question that the EEOC had to work out of whether the role that public perception would pay to this. Most people at the time didn't want dudes being there serving them in yeah. flight. Because a lot of times at this time, too, uh, flying was reserved for upper class and businessmen. Mm-hmm. And they wanted pretty women on their flights. So they don't even bring male stewards in to testify before the EEOC. I mean, this case that was allegedly about the right for a man to work on uh, a plane. I mean, they barely ask the people who are working yeah. on the plane because they say at the time they've got like four or five complaints from men who want to be stewards, whereas they have 150 complaints from these women who want to get married. So, you know, the airlines kind of say, hey, this isn't about men. It's about these women. And the, the Title VII says nothing about marriage. It says nothing about weight gain. So that's why they had to make it about men. But ultimately, the, the, the committee decides they've got men already doing this job. The men seem to be doing the job just as well. So therefore, you can't discriminate on gender. And eventually, all the weight gain stuff gets struck down. Years later. And isn't it ironic that in the same way that sex was slid into the Equal Rights Act or the Civil Rights Act, excuse me, and it passed, women then use <laughs> sex again to uh, to win themselves more rights. I mean, it's just like a, a Trojan horse. It's really like the ultimate Smitty move over and over again. Mm-hmm. It's a double trick, a double turn. Catch-22s, it's all of them. And you could say that, well, in the end, everybody wins because the airlines have to strike down these rules that women can't get married and can't gain weight and everything. But it's still, for the men, tough out there because the media coverage of this landmark ruling by the EEOC is 
very sensational and very homophobic. Yeah, it's like, oh my gosh, watch who's giving you your coffee. They'll slip something into it and they'll try and drug you and, and it's flying's going to suck from now on. They made fun of them calling them he stewardesses. So, um, it was, it was not, uh, an easy transition, but I think that, you know, one gay newspaper did pick up on the fact that if you're a small little family flying from like the Midwest to New York, this might be the first opportunity you have to see a gay person. And if they're in a position of serving you and helping you, it could actually do a lot to improve the standing of the gay community in middle America's eyes, which I think is kind of interesting. Yeah. And being a flight attendant has become a popular occupation um, for gay men. As a number of the articles we've read pointed out and, I think it has something to do with the fact that, that there is, there, it's sort of an emancipatory career, which mm-hmm. has been for women. There was, um, an article very recently in the New York Times about how Arab women are flocking to the UAE to become flight attendants because it is their first opportunity to really break out of, uh, their so- societal roles that they would have to stay within if they were to stay home instead of actually forging a career for themselves. And that was the same role that it played for a lot of women in the States and then also for a lot of gay men, I would argue. But you know what's kind of interesting when you compare um, that article about women in the Middle East versus women in the U.S. in like the 1930s, 1940s, is we said, you know, um, one of the quotes in the Chicago Tribune was that being a flight attendant was as sure a path to the altar as any. It was very much... You can get married. You can mm-hmm. do this for a few years, then you can get married. Whereas um, the New York Times article about the Middle East made the point that almost the opposite is happening. Like, yes, these women are gaining a little bit more independence, begging to fly around the world and do this profession, but they might be getting too much so that when they actually go back to their town, the men see them as unmarriable, that they are not good marriage material mm-hmm. because they've been exposed to, you know, such newness. But maybe just in the same way that it took time for us to evolve from these sky girls to these stewards, sexualized stewardesses with, uh, you know, airline taglines that said, like, we'll move our tails for you. And fly and me. Does your wife know that you're flying with us and naughty things like that? It took a long time, what, 40 years for that to happen. It wasn't until 1979, uh, that a female journalist was finally like, okay. We're not going to call you stewardesses anymore. You are gender-neutral flight attendants. Yeah, stop thinking about these women as sex objects bringing you coffee. These are women who, women and men who are designed to protect your safety aboard, mm-hmm. to make sure that we get from point A to point B as comfortably as possible, but they're not, you know, your personal servant. They are serving a legitimate function on this airplane. And granted, as discount flights have become more and more the norm and people are trying to pinch pennies, it's got to be much harder up yeah. there than it used to be because people are disgruntled. You know, people used to dress up yeah. for flights. My actually, one of my brothers still likes to dress up for a flight. He's like, well, I just, I just feel better in the skies. Uh, you never know when the paparazzi are going to get you when you get off the plane. <laughs> I guess so. Uh, so it used to be this, this sort of revered thing, yeah. but now we just hop on, we shove our bags in the overhead. And wait and cross our fingers that we don't get get skimped on peanuts. Yeah. It's not what it used to be. It's but not. in some ways, that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah, I can deal without um, a sexy stewardess. I think it's I think it's great that we're we're much friendly. more gender neutral now. I'd like a friendly flight attendant. Oh, of course. You don't want one of those jet blue guys that made the headlines about a year ago for taking the emergency shoot down. Yeah. Saying the I'm fight done. with the passenger, I'm done. Yeah. 
Um, and what about those flight attendants who are so nice and they'll let you have your entire can of soda or oh, give you yeah. extra pretzels and peanuts? Yeah. On our way to South by Southwest, I totally got two bags of pretzels <laughs> and it made quite an impression on me. I would say we're very easy to please when it comes to flight. Yeah. Kristen, you and I. All I want is my entire Diet Coke. <laughs> Yeah. And I don't want you to come and try and collect it before I'm done drinking it. Yeah, don't make me, don't me make me guzzle it. Make, yeah. Let me sit a bit. Let me, let me enjoy my, my flight. Um, well, before we wrap this up and ask for everyone out there's opinion on this, I do want to give credit to two of our sources because we leaned on them a lot. Um, Femininity and Flight, A History of Flight Attendance is a book by Kathleen M. Barry. And that's where we got a lot of our information about sort of the ideal woman part of mm-hmm. the podcast. And then a paper called Male Stewardesses by Phil Tymeyer provided a lot of the information about um, the male stereotypes and the court case action. So, And if you do have extra time on your hands, I highly recommend going and reading about those, uh, those court cases about male flight attendants. Because to me, that was the most surprising uh, stuff to learn about flight attendant history. We know so much about the history of female flight attendants, but... Mm-hmm. Man, men had men had a hard road to hoe in the in the skies. But now we can all be in the skies together. Together. All right, let's do some listener mail. I've got one here from Jonathan, and it's about uh, the male nursing podcast. He writes, "It's always an interesting and sometimes touchy subject as men are not marginalized as a minority in everyday life as women are, but place a man in the nursing profession, and suddenly there are issues he has to deal with." which could possibly distract from his responsibilities. I would like to caution you, however, on using the term male nurse. The preferred term is men in nursing. Perhaps this is a matter of semantics, but some people believe that saying male nurse is actually reinforcing the stereotype that a normal nurse is female. A nurse is a nurse. There shouldn't be a need for a qualifier because to do so implies that you are modifying the noun to denote something unusual or atypical. Would you, in normal everyday conversation, say to a friend, I have an appointment at 2 o'clock with my female doctor. So, yes, it's a very good point, Jonathan, that uh, we had to kind of put male nurse to differentiate in the podcast. But when it comes to the day, a nurse is a nurse, a teacher is a teacher, a doctor is a doctor. I've got an email here from Molly. Is it me? It's not you, unless you're in a polyamorous relationship, because this is about polyamory. And Molly writes, my husband and I have been in a poly slash open relationship for almost a year. We both have very different sexual needs, and while the rest of our relationship is amazing, this one detail was corrupting everything with feelings of isolation, resentment, and frustration. We realized that this wasn't either of our faults, and we were just very different. We had some friends in really positive open relationships of different kinds, and ultimately, after a lot of counseling and work on communication skills, we decided to give it a go. My husband has more of a true emotional relationship with her girlfriend, and they're pretty serious. I really like her, and she does the things with him that I don't want to. So the time we get together is doing things we want to do together. I've had a a few less serious relationships. I'm looking less for the emotional side, more for the physical. However, I need to really trust someone, so there's definitely still an emotional aspect. We meet each other's potential partners, and we find find this helps to reduce the jealousy. And it's easy to create this amazing fantasy person in your head that your partner is running off with. But when you meet them in real life, you see they are human with good and bad things, just like everyone else. So far, it has worked out really well for us. As you said in the podcast, it takes crazy levels of communication, which has sent our satisfaction in our relationship through the roof. We really listen to each other and try to find feasible ways to meet each other's needs. We still have sex, but we are no longer dependent on each other to meet that need. So again, we do it now because we want to, not 
because we have to. We are non-believers, so it really wasn't a moral question for us. We just realized we had a problem that could destroy an otherwise amazing partnership, and we chose to find an unconventional way to solve a problem. So thank you for that insight, Molly. And you, Molly. And if you guys have any girls or women, I shouldn't say girls, whatever inclusive term you want to use. Whatever, yes. Whatever you want to say. You can email us at momstuff at howstuffworks.com. You can head over to our Facebook page and like us and leave a comment and comment on other comments that have been commented on. And you can follow us on Twitter at momstuffpodcast. And finally, you can read what we're doing during the week on our blog. It's Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? In this time of pandemic and revolution, do you find yourself frustrated at high levels of corruption and inequality? At our inability to get basic things done? At the persistence of systemic racism? You're not alone. I'm Baratunde Thurston, author, activist, and comedian. Our democratic experiment is at a tipping point, but which way we tip is up to us. Listen to How to Citizen with Baratunde on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Dear Young Rockers Season 2 is a raw, honest, strange, and entertaining story about finding yourself in your early 20s and a lifelong relationship with music. It's hosted by me, Chelsea Erson, and is executive produced by Jake Brennan of Disgraceland. Dear Young Rocker comes to you from Double Elvis Productions and iHeartRadio. Listen to Dear Young Rocker on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.